Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 9. Contessa Lilratha is a stunningly beautiful woman with sharp cheekbones and a 12-foot wingspan. The wings are feathered and black. Even without them, she'd look a little inhuman. She says nothing to Carissa, which, in Carissa's opinion, is the best thing that has happened to her all day, and proceeds to the library to meet Keltham. Even folded, the wings make it impossible to walk abreast with her in these hallways. Carissa walks behind. They enter the library. You said you wished to negotiate a contract with the Executive Collective of Cheliacs regarding formal and informal rights of information and its dissemination. I am Contessa Liratha, advisor from Hell to the Chief Executive of Cheliacs, and my signature is binding upon the Executive Collective of Cheliacs. Contessa Liratha says in Baseline. Carissa casts an extremely discreet tongues of her own so she can follow what's going on. Keltham. Lawful chaotic earwain. Okay, whoa, they do not go out of their way to avoid sexual superstimuli around here, because that is the hottest humanoid Keltham has seen ever. She's dressed in what he guesses to be the local equivalent of body armor, and makes it look better than would be legal in most cities, outside of a shop of ill-advised consumer goods. There's something about her that makes the armor look more dangerous than Dathalani actresses in movies have ever managed to do with their own body armor, as seen by him across a screen. Keltham has never realized before that he would like to add that to his list of positive mate qualities. Keltham is not even remotely considering hitting on her. She's busy, and Keltham hasn't proven himself anywhere near that far and knows it. She might also not be of a species that can mate with his, come to think. Keltham tilts his head in a brief but formal Dathalani gesture of acknowledgement, such as would be appropriate for a medium-sized business owner greeting a legislator. Markers and baselines say that Contessa is her title not her name, but he has no idea what that title means. It didn't translate. I'll endeavor to waste your time as little as possible, and apologize in advance for those inevitable wastes of time that will occur anyways, due to my profound ignorance of this world, and uncalibration over how cautious I need to be. I observe that your physiology is outside of what I know, as the human range of observed variation. If your cognitive psychology is correspondingly outside the human range of observed variation— is there anything I should know about that, to make this conversation proceed quickly and effectively? Being able to speak baseline again is a relief. He can say what he actually means, and not have that come out in enormous long sentences full of enormous words. I am a devil. Unlike humans, devils are uniformly lawful evil, and do not tend to possess internal contradicting impulses. Devils possess a correspondingly better understanding of law but it is reported your society has gone unprecedentedly far in inculcating that in mortals anyway. Do you prefer these negotiations happen unobserved, or that witnesses commit to not sharing their contents? Keltham restrains himself from asking how Galarian manages to be this messed up, if there is anyone sane around. She's a busy woman. I would wish the outputs of the negotiation to be witnessed in their translation. If these negotiations are to be carried out in baseline— it makes no obvious difference to me whether incomprehensible words are witnessed or not. You may optimize this for your own convenience, or for the benefit of, or protection of, those who would otherwise witness it. Your security has translation magic readily available to them and by default would observe you. I again have no objection. 
Keltham isn't even sure why she feels the need to clarify this point. Well, there's one possible hypothesis. I do not intend to conduct myself in any fashion I would not wish known widely and written in history. She smiles very slightly. My understanding is that you possess information on, among other things, teaching mortals lawfulness, and that you wish to negotiate terms under which it will be disseminated within Galerion, subject to whatever restrictions are necessary to protect people's safety here? Keltham starts dumping his local utility function, step one of expeditious negotiations. It seems to me in my ignorance that this world is faced with a problem, the world wound, which requires of it a superior level of collective competence, on pain of its possible destruction. I have information that will perhaps be helpful for this. Should I succeed in conveying such, I wish to capture for myself some small but fair fraction of those gains. I may then sell some of my information, of that type which would soon be profitable to its possessor, and perhaps sell it excludably to that possessor alone for as long as it takes to be rediscovered elsewhere. But of the types of information I have in my possession, it seems to me that there is much information which would and should end up disseminated beyond Keliax, even in the short term, having the character of truly basic knowledge that is the foundation of too much else and too much further research, as may need to happen in other places for the world wound to be expeditiously defeated. Nor is it likely in the long run that this world shall converge to an equilibrium in which Keliax alone knows the more advanced equivalents of basic math. Nor is it particularly appealing to me that many people of Galarian in the long run should end up ignorant, even if I gain twice as much money thereby, if I am at all useful and I capture the smallest fraction of the resulting gains, I expect to saturate my uses for money, and so the remainder of my utility is in my concern for the aesthetics of my deeds. Even if Asmodeus deemed it in his interests that Chelish alone know the ways of law-aspiring thought, a hundred and forty-four years hence, it is not yet obvious to me that this is my own interest in the affair. Then much of the information I have, forming the foundation of that which I wish to sell, is that which should be disseminated and though it not be sold exclusively, I would yet wish the credit to myself, and to my world which taught me, for the sharing of that knowledge and the benefits it brings. Such gratuities as might be legally due to it would be due to myself, with middleman's fees to Chiliax only for that part which Chiliax actually played. And such informal gratitude as might be due would be known to be credited to Keltham of Dath Elan, and to Chiliax accurately, for whichever role it actually played in conveying that information further. And yet it has been observed to me by Carissa Savar that I am ignorant of this world, and may not understand the consequences of sharing such information, nor have I the experience to negotiate a lasting contract with confidence. As a hedge against both this folly of mine and the imperfect overlap of our interests, I had thought to suggest a baseline contract establishing a point of departure and next best alternative to renegotiated agreement— under which information I share freely with Keliax must be made available to those factions which presently contribute to the fight at the world wound, after a period of one month, known to have come from Keltham of Dath Elan with the help of Cheliax, unless that contract is renegotiated before then. With exceptions for such information, as may be designated info-hazardous by a majority vote of whichever world-wound fighting deities, known to be able to speak on the subject, may make their opinions known on that subject. And then, if that turns out to be stupid, and you can make me see it stupid, it could be renegotiated before the month was up. This would not be the only contract that needed signing, but it would let me get started on teaching the basic structure of reality and the way of law-aspiring thought, while I gained the knowledge and confidence to sign other contracts.
I suspect the aesthetically satisfying way of doing this in your world would not be aesthetically satisfying in ours, either in implementation or in results. Cheliax lets people in. If they hear we are doing something better than what everyone else is doing, and they come here or go to a church of Asmodeus somewhere else, and they say they want to come here or want to learn these things, we would not hesitate to teach them. There are a dozen things that I can think of offhand that could go wrong with telling those nations at the world wound whatever your procedures are, but to name two representative ones, there are organizations at the world wound that do not make and will not keep commitments. There are also organizations that will try but not be very good at it. There isn't a meaningful difference between the organizations at the world wound get it and everyone getting it except in who is getting a head start. Taldor mostly sends criminals to the world wound to be rid of them, and I think some people there are there for taking part in an effort to overthrow the government of Taldor, and it seems likely that if they were more capable and possessed with a valuable resource they could trade onward, there would be a war. Aside from that, it's a fine set of people to get a head start if we want to give it to everyone at all, which I am uncertain of. The society you describe is different from ours in many ways, and it seems possible that the ideas you are describing do not work as the foundation for a society of humans without some other behind-the-scenes implementation, screening, or emergency response we don't have. Asmodeus thinks Cheliax should chance it. But if Cheliax chances it and then it's a terrible idea, Chelish provinces will break off to be independent, or Chelish people will leave for somewhere else. If you do this everywhere, there won't be a somewhere else. This is exactly how Keltham expects a very serious person to talk. It stands in extremely sharp contrast to the gibberish written in the library books. It's making Keltham wonder whether this is sheer, convergent evolution of agents who think more sanely, or if somebody's precogging him or reading his mind, or if something smarter than human looked at transcripts of everything he said and deduced what sort of arguments he would respond to. Also, why must everything in Galarian be such a mess? Why, why, why? Okay, do they have obvious incentives? Yes, they have obvious incentives coming out of their ass. They probably do not think Keltham is not supposed to notice this. Lurilatha has met smart people ever, and possibly met Asmodeus. Is Keltham going to ignore reasonable depictions of potential catastrophe because they could be incentivized lies? Realistically, no. That would be wantonly stupid in possible worlds that are way too large to act wantonly stupid inside them. Suppose I put to you as an alternative suggestion that lawful factions at the world wound receive such information— and may of course restrict its use while testing is underway in Cheliacs, should they themselves deem that wise. Is this the kind of information that could plausibly leak through carelessness, or forgetfulness of the exact terms under which it was shared, or intoxicated pillow talk, or would it be impossible to share unwisely with someone who plausibly should not be an early recipient without soberly and deliberately deciding it was a good idea to teach them? I do not understand your people and their prior knowledge base well enough to guess what is mimetically contagious over a significant fraction of the population. I would not have thought the basic concepts difficult, and yet the process by which they were imbued in me does in retrospect involve training from earliest childhood. That training being absent here, the inspiration of law is also absent to a degree that baffled and shocked me. Perhaps law is not so contagious. Even if what I try to teach for redistribution is only the most basic elements of law-aspiring thinking for human beings and the most simple features of reality. It is hard for me to see the pathway by which people becoming saner would leave them worse off. As you may or may not already know, 
the law itself proclaims that should not happen among agents already law-abiding, but Galarion is still very baffling to me. I had not thought to share dangerous information. I was not in my own society, one of those who held dangerous information in their keeping. But if what is not dangerous to us is dangerous to you, I don't know. I haven't considered good concrete examples. Do you have one in mind? The information in combination with a particular set of values persuades most people to immediately commit suicide, and mortals get aggressively selected for inability to understand law. It seems possible to me that this has already happened, or something adjacent is an operative constraint on our mortal population in some form. The information in combination with a particular set of values persuades some people that the universe ought to be destroyed and they should aid Rovagug in escaping or otherwise try to bring about its destruction. People do decide that and try that sometimes and obviously always fail. But until a century ago, the gods had foresight, and so there was not even the chance they would succeed. Now the gods don't have foresight, and it is required that the cultists not be competent. Sigrate, in my world there are those who hold all such secrets in their keeping, and even I would show them deference for the many oaths they've sworn. I don't suppose there's any analogous such institution here to send one of their own who has already sworn neutrality in all conflicts between factions and corporations. I think a world has to build many other strengths first, before a mortal could take those oaths and be expected to mean them and have a reliability at keeping them that approached what would be required. Devils would call on an axiomite, but I know of none of those on this plane, and it seems plausible they could not survive in it. They are found in lawful outer planes. Axis. They're found in Axis. Perhaps even Contessa Lorlatha is unsure whether to make it clear to Keltham that everything about Keltham is found in Axis. Someday she's going to die, and if she is extremely brilliant and extremely perfect, then someday after that she will get to be like that, and it'll be worth all the agony in between. The lower keepers have broken their oaths in recorded memory, but not the highest keepers in my world. But if they don't exist here, then that's the fact. Are there leaders of law-aspiring factions in enough direct contact with law-abiding gods that they, at least, could be entrusted with potentially dangerous information? He's suspicious of the notion that he managed to drop in on the only faction that could safely handle incredibly valuable information, but not infinitely so. Whatever force dropped him here could have made a choice of destinations. The pharaoh of Osirian is in very close contact with Abadar, and very likely to be truthworthy with this and they think he knows of it already. The leadership of Nidal is likewise in close contact with their lawful god, but their lawful god is Zon Kuthon, the one who had his values inverted by the void. I recommend handling Nidal and Zon Kuthon's church differently than you'd handle all the other churches and factions. The imperial line of Min Kai claims descent from Shizuru, lawful good goddess of the sun, and I expect, though less confidently, they could be trusted as well. Shizuru stopped taking actions in the material plane several thousand years ago. Minkai is isolationist and 8,000 miles away. From my own perspective, I desire to prepare against the contingency that Keliax finds it of utility to monopolize knowledge that I have no utility in Keliax monopolizing. Suppose, then, a contract which, if not renegotiated by mutual consent within a year, at the end of that year sends a copy of all recorded underlying knowledge I divulge to the leader of Minkai and the leader of Osirian. Chiliax may not, without my own consent, 
broadcast that knowledge in any form which fails to credit it to Keltham, brought of death Ilan. Should it begin to spread in any case, this putative contract requires you to inform me of this fact, as it becomes apparent, and to give appropriate credit then, unless otherwise renegotiated. And though this was also said informally before I came here, Caliacs nor Asmodeus nor their agents may not hinder me from departing at any time, should I choose to do so, nor from earning such money as may be required to pay my passage, nor from trading for such passage at its customary fee, nor by any magic or other means take my knowledge from me, or prevent me from retelling it. With the intent being that I am not hindered from spreading the information myself, should it seem wise, and should Cheliacs refuse to do so. What would you propose that Cheliacs do? Should we learn that you intend to imperil our world? Fair, if he tries to take their perspective on the alien. Shizuru, Abadar, and Asmodeus, or their representatives, may by their unanimous agreement annul this contract, or nothing in the contract shall be construed to prevent me from being stopped or imprisoned as authorized by majority vote of the lawful deities of Galarian, which is probably a weird way to put it, but I'm not sure what the usual way is of stopping people out to free Rovagug. I'd hope there'd be some sort of interfactional treaty on that, which if so, no agreement merely between Keltham and Cheliacs could or should hinder. It is a concession on top of what was communicated by Asmodeus, which was just that they had to let him go eventually and not torture him or cause him comparably incapacitating kinds of harm. She probably has to make it, though. If they can't hurt him, they need him cooperative, and he is smart enough to notice if she has a brilliant justification for not giving him even the most reasonable of the things that he wants, and to treat that as information, of which he already has rather too much. Cheliacs, Asmodeus and our agents may not hinder you from departing at any time, should you choose to do so, nor from earning such money as may be required to pay your passage, nor from trading for such passage at its customary fee, nor by any magic or other means take your knowledge from you or prevent you from retelling it, except insofar as this would contradict normal procedures for protecting the world from destruction, which do exist. The other terms are in broad strokes acceptable to us. Shall we work out the details? Yes, let's. I apologize for the expense of your time, but I need to know a little about what is covered by normal procedures for protecting the world from destruction, which, for all I know, authorizes, say, you personally, to imprison any person in Keliacs at any time for any reason. On an alert from Asmodeus or a god allied with him that a person poses an immediate threat to Galarian's continued existence or habitability for humans, we stop them. You have my word we would not kill you or take actions against you beyond containing you even under those circumstances, but we might not release you until we had appropriately addressed the avenue by which you threatened the world. Is Asmodeus a kind of entity that simply does not issue such orders falsely, or by playing with the definitions of terms, anything is a threat to the world on a line of sufficiently low probability? If you meant any of the things you said about the world wound, the expected lifespan of the world should be longer given your presence in it. If that were true, then arresting you would obviously not qualify as protecting the world from destruction. If you want to oblige Asmodeus to get additional gods to agree with him, we can write that in. Gods don't differ on predictions they've had time to think about. It wouldn't have occurred to Keltham to imagine that lawful gods could have common knowledge of disagreement before they'd had time to think. No. She must just be talking about convergence of God's first-order opinions, or their empirically observed convergence times, under conditions where they can't share info. I think I'm happy with you having the right to stop and contain me, but not otherwise kill me, 
or take actions against me, upon Asmodeus alerting that he swears the world is predicted to have a net lower probability of surviving the next century if you don't thus stop me, for reasons irrespective of Asmodeus or his agents, having deliberately decided to promote lower survival probabilities in that conditional. As near as Keltham can figure, that should only break if Asmodeus swears falsely, in which case this whole treaty is empty paper. I'm also happy to hear about more standard agreements and treaties protecting the world, into which you believe this treaty should interface. That's satisfactory to us. There's an extension of the World Wound Treaty, with fewer signatories, committing that in the event of an imminent threat to the world of greater magnitude than the World Wound, signatories will extend the World Wound Treaty's provisions for coordination to that automatically and cease hostilities against each other. You might want to look it up, but I don't think this would need to interface with that. There are other agreements I'll make you aware of if you seem to be on a path to discovering the vulnerability they guard against. Please do. I am not, as I understand it, good, but I do have business ethics that forbid destroying other people's private property, or the entire planet they live on. Are there other provisions to be negotiated, or should we start writing up? I'm prepared to start writing up an agreement along the lines we have just outlined. I expect your speed to exceed mine, and I'm happy to have you do so. May I have your assurance that you will not write with intent to include terms, phrasings, or conditions which would be interpreted by any relevant entities in ways that would surprise me, or have consequences favorable to yourself and unfavorable to myself, which you mostly expect me not to notice? There are six people on the planet with the sense-motive skill to notice that this devil feels this is the most egregiously joyless contract condition ever devised, clearly devised by people with no sense of honorable competition. That is very reasonable, of course. You have my assurance that I will not write with intent for any of the contract's conditions or terms to be interpreted in a way that would surprise you, or in a way counter to the agreement that we just devised, or with detrimental consequences to you that I expect you not to notice. All right, let's go. She plucks a feather off her wing, sharpens it with her teeth, and starts writing. She writes very quickly apparently just limited by the necessity of pausing every line to blow on the ink so it dries. She has very beautiful handwriting. Keltham comes from a world whose fantasy novels developed in such fashion as to not include any tropes under which writing a contract with a devil's ichor would have supernatural effects. Contracts are shadows of the one irreplaceable algorithm, and breaking them might get powerful supernatural beings angry at you for peeing on the algorithm, but this would be totally unrelated to the ink in which those contracts were written. History has been screened off, and the best guess shared false historical world fiction that developed afterwards doesn't include the best guess that people used to use feathers as pens. That's not a trope, either. Keltham is staring at this trying to figure out whether she is an artificial organism, designed in such fashion that her anatomy just happens to include better pens than could otherwise be supplied on short notice to a government negotiation in a secure facility. She regrets the necessity of not answering this question for him because she's not acknowledged to be reading his mind. The contract is three pages when she's finished it. She hands it to him. Keltham reads it over in a relative hurry, mindful of the expensive time of the very serious alien sitting across from him. He still takes time to carefully scrutinize three important-looking sections and randomly samples two innocent-looking sections for scrutiny. It's not written like a Dathalani contract would be, but that hardly surprises him. The point of a contract is to be written in a standard language for the locale in which it will be interpreted, to have predictable effects on the arbiters who will interpret it. Dathalani contract language would not be predictable in this region. It basically seems to be what they discussed. Sorry, but just to check, 
Was this document indeed completely authored by you just now? And was it thereby covered by the assurance I heard regarding an absence of detrimental terms you expect to surprise me? Keltham says. He did notice, having had a few moments to think about it, that if somebody else stepped in and wrote through her, the given assurance wouldn't hold. I wrote every word on those three pages, and the assurances I gave you are intended to hold for everything in the contract. Which could always be an auditory illusion, but then she could also just not be a lawful being in the first place, if they're lying about that. At some point, you have to notice that these eight million doomy possibilities are all highly conditionally dependent on each other, meaning that the world in which they're all false has a decent enough probability. Keltham signs. She signs as well. She sets the quill, under its own power, to producing a copy. It does this even faster than she wrote the first version. I will look forward to working with you in the future, she says, while it writes. This happens to not be a standard Dathalani business pleasantry, prompting Keltham to start analyzing the statement for possible hidden meanings that she'd want to communicate to him. The obvious baseline interpretation that it'd be of positive expected utility to have future interactions they'd both deem to be of positive expected utility, wouldn't seem to communicate much extra information. She's not also flirting with him, is she? If so, Keltham's kinda got enough to worry about in that department already. Maybe someday when he's got a lot more sexual self-confidence. I hope and expect there will be future business opportunities worth your time, Keltham replies, with ambiguity leaning negative. She takes the second copy and walks out. Everyone in her path steps well clear of it. Now there goes a female entity who actually acts like a sane person, Keltham says in Taldane. You know, I frankly don't understand how your planet manages to be so screwed up, if people like her are even around. Do you just have a custom of not asking them what you're doing wrong, or what? No one is quite sure how to answer that question, and it shows for a moment. Well, it'd be stunningly presumptuous to talk to her, which I guess is a way of saying yes. What would you expect, I don't know, the world wound to look like if people listened to her about things? Didn't get the chance to observe it in detail, remember? But in broad strokes, it sounds like the world wound military expedition is one of the most functional parts of your entire planet, presumably because it's backed by relatively more attention from highly intelligent gods. I'd expect the rest of the planet to have better coordination and more advanced material. You know, this is just going directly into the lecture on the basics that I can now start giving. Anyone want to take a minute to get set up before I start covering, like, the basics of lawfulness so someday you can be as awesome as her? Oh, and I should have thought to have said this earlier, but I can't cast illusion spells yet, so I need. Taldane has no word for whiteboard or multipen. Lovely. An erasable vertical surface to draw on, and if available, thick erasable pens in multiple colors. Someday be as awesome as Contessa Lerotha is a very compelling pitch. Hell does not in the typical case produce results that good, and everyone gathers excitedly around. Vertical surfaces are by default erasable if you have prestidigitation, and pens in multiple colors can be found with slightly more scrambling than that. Keltham takes their scrambling time as a pause in which to think. It's been a long time, at least by the standards of his total life lived so far, since the very basics were explained to him. Keltham was stupider then, hopefully stupider than these people are now, because he sure doesn't want to spend years painstakingly teaching all that stuff, with like a dozen 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 carefully composed exercises whose exact details he can't possibly remember unless there's an intelligence-enhancing spell for that. Maybe he'll just, like, rapidly state as true all the things that are true and see if that just works for most things. 
before he tries to do anything more difficult than that, in accordance with the classic Dathalani proverb heuristic which says, Try things the easy way first. If you succeed, you won't need to try them the difficult way. If you fail, you'll know the first part that makes it difficult, instead of guessing that in advance. The proverb itself puts Keltham in mind of the watchers of children who first spoke the proverb to him. Mostly, of course, children learn from older children, but there are adults who know more to oversee the process and prevent any semantic drift that might otherwise occur. They are not full-fledged keepers, those child watchers, but they are in a profession that calls for an oath or three. Children matter a lot. What happens to them is one of the causal linchpins of everything else that makes civilization work and the watchers who specialize in teaching foundational subjects are those who are selected, among other qualities, for being able to hold very basic truths in reverence and operate them with joy. Keltham is not usually a reverent person, but it has never particularly occurred to him to question the attitudes that his watchers took towards the deeper truths of reality and thought when Keltham was a child. Keltham remembers, then, how things are taught to children— especially those ideas too important and precise to be entrusted to the teaching of older children alone. Keltham draws those feelings about himself, and Keltham holds forth upon the way. Even when you truly expect and anticipate that something will happen to you, sometimes something else happens to you instead. Beliefs are the name given to those things that control your anticipations. That which gives to you your actual experiences is termed reality. Sufficiently young children have not yet developed the capability to appreciate that their beliefs, the beliefs of other people, and reality, are three distinct objects of thought. They are not capable of distinguishing between what they know themselves and what other people know. Comprehending this marks a threshold in what is taught to Dathalani children. Keltham thinks everybody here probably understands that already, so he's going to skip over that threshold and the exercises leading up to it, but people should let him know if this starts being a sticking point. Reality possesses both overt order and deeper order, surface appearances and facts behind them. Deeper order can be obvious or non-obvious. When you observe that Jenneth resembles her mother Merwen, you observe a surface seeming. When you say that daughters often resemble mothers in general, you are observing a deeper order. If you could peer at things that were arbitrarily small, like being able to look at a bug as though it were the size of a bird, and smaller yet— and you saw tiny, twisting spirals inside Jenneth, all carrying the same very long, intricate pattern, and you saw that half of those tiny, twisting spirals appeared also in Merwin, and the other half of Jenneth's spirals had come from her father, Eveth, you would have discovered a non-obvious deeper order, something with the promise of explaining the obvious deeper order. Baseline has a separate word by which to speak of the non-obvious deeper order, the hidden order. Behind a hidden order may lie another hidden order, even when you are not told about a hidden order, even when nobody knows what the hidden order is, it may still exist and be the secret factor that has organized the seeming chaos of the experiences before you. The understanding that reality is full of hidden order is the threshold that marks a mind's readiness to apprehend the lawfulness of reality. Once a child becomes able to distinguish between what they know and what others know, and what is, that child can soon after apprehend that what seems to them like madness, confusion, noise, or simply a collection of boring, unconnected facts, is only the appearance of a collection of unconnected facts, the absence of knowledge of an explanation if one exists. These children are ready to understand that their own bewilderment is their map of the world, and that the territory itself is never feeling bewildered, and that it is often full of hidden orders. It is possible to believe that something is a hidden order, and be wrong about that, 
Maps of hidden orders are not thereby part of the territory. They're just maps of a supposedly deeper part of the territory. Children are led through several exercises meant to help them appreciate this fact on a deep level. That you in your own mind are really impressed with a theory of hidden order is not the same fact as that hidden order actually being present in the territory and able to control your experiences. This has always seemed like a really obvious point to Keltham, now that his brain is mature. So he's just going to press on without doing a lot of exercises there. But people should speak up, if that's somehow torpedoing the rest of his lecture. It was the way of reality, in the universe that Keltham knew, that complicated things possessed the hidden order of being made of simpler parts, and in Dathilan, knowledge of this fact was power. He's not quite sure that the same also holds true of Galarian, but Keltham did do some preliminary checks, and was told, for example, that snowflakes have hexagonal symmetry. Keltham knows the hidden order underlying snowflakes in Dathilan, the tiny pieces that nestled together in sixfold symmetry there. So he's guessing that snowflakes have the same hidden order in Galarian, and by extension that Keltham's own body has the same hidden orders of the same kind, rather than having been remade and rewritten on his arrival here. There are a lot of hidden orders invoked within a Dathalani body. It is a further guess, though not a certain one, that Galarian possesses all the same hidden orders of that kind, that the things here that Keltham recognizes are ultimately made out of the same tiny parts that Keltham knows. In Keltham's world, they don't have spells. Some of the hidden orders here must have been absent from Keltham's world. In Keltham's world, when you want to go from one place to another place very far away, you get into a huge metal structure with fixed wings and powerful engines that push out air behind it, thrusting that airplane forwards to fly across oceans and continents. To build something like that, you have to understand the hidden orders of metal in order to build sufficiently strong metal. You have to understand the hidden orders of fire in order to find dense enough fuels that burn hot enough for the fuel on board the airplane to last for flying across the continent. But these hidden orders are invariant within Dathalan. They work for everyone, not just spellcasters. They aren't truths about the people using the airplane. They're truths about metal and fire. For a quarter of a day's income, you can buy a ticket for an airplane trip across a pretty large ocean, going slightly less fast than the speed of sound in air, and get to the next continent in a quarter day or half day. Keltham is not sure how much it costs to teleport the same distance here, but he gets the impression it is more expensive than that. Artifacts that exploit Dathilan-style hidden orders can be made without spellcasters. They are economically scalable. That is part of the change that Keltham hopes to bring to Galarian, and driving back the demons of the world wound will only be the bare beginning of its consequences. But even if that part doesn't work out, because the snowflakes, it may turn out, are only a misleading resemblance born of other pathways, there's knowledge Keltham has which is more valuable than that, and which is even more likely to hold here. A collection of hidden orders that might hold even everywhere, though it is hard to be quite certain of that, without observing everywhere. This is the knowledge of the laws governing attempts to think, which have the character of... Wait, Keltham hasn't explained the difference between empirical truths and necessary truths. Does everyone here already happen to know the difference between empirical truths and necessary truths? He's kind of guessing not based on some previous exchanges about 2 plus 2 equals 5. If not, he can cover that too. The notion of validity is as good a place as any to give an example of laws governing thought. His audience is very attentive. Chelish school emphasizes not being disruptive or wasting the time of the best students by being one of the worst ones. No one has any questions. No one knows the difference between empirical truths and necessary truths, 
Though from context, one girl is willing to venture that empirical truths are those that can differ between planes, and necessary truths must be ones that hold everywhere. Keltham is glad to see that anyone is paying attention. Good for guessing, he says, which is a common phrase in Dath Elan. Now, I'm not quite sure how you define plane here, but consider, in Dath Elan, no other plane has ever, to my knowledge, interacted with our own. To see a thing is to have it affect you. We've never seen any other planes, seen anything else that has shown signs of interacting with another plane, and so on. We are sensible people who prefer not to believe things for no reason. How would we know that a truth was universal? Why would we even have a word for that? Even if you saw that something was true across every plane you'd ever visited, how would you make the jump from there to thinking it was true across all planes? Does anyone want to venture another guess? It's better to be wrong out loud than to be silent, as the saying goes. Well, if it's better to be wrong out loud, then they'll do that. Maybe you can figure out the set of all possible physical laws that could support intelligent creatures, and then if it's true in all of those, it's true everywhere relevant. You could, like, figure out the set of changes you could make to our plane where it'd still be true, and if it'd be true no matter what you changed, then it'd be true everywhere. Even if you've only got one plane, you'd still have multiple planets. And they might differ on some things, but not others. The topic of which laws support intelligent life is a separate interesting topic. We probably won't get to it today. We're interested in things that stay true, even in planes with no intelligent life. Can you come up with an example of something that has to stay true no matter what laws of the planes you change? All first circle spells have to be structurally isomorphic? Their world doesn't have magic. So they wouldn't do anything, but they'd still be isomorphic. There could be a world with more dimensions for stuff to pass through itself. One equals one? Now there's something that might be true everywhere, which you might think would make it an important fact. And if it's important, then it's important to know exactly what it is. That's true everywhere. So what do you mean when you say that one equals one? I mean, I'm not at all sure it's an important fact. It's mostly just saying that we defined equals, and the way we defined equals, the things on both sides of it are the same, and things are the same as themselves. But it does seem like it'd be true everywhere. It's something of a mischievous question, but mischief is also important in learning, so I'll ask. One common way to ask what something means is to ask what you experience when that proposition is true. If you say water is liquid, for example, and I ask you what that means, you might tell me that water describes the clear stuff inside a glass you hold up, and that liquid means that a substance tries to cling to itself, but has no set shape, and so conforms itself to the shape of its container. And when I see you pour the water from the glass onto the floor, I should expect to see it spread out across the floor, while still locally clinging to itself and staying in contiguous puddles. Now what do you see when one equals one? This is so stressful! If you use a spell to duplicate something, it'll have all the same properties as the original. You don't see anything. It's just a definition. Things exist at all? That'd imply it's not true in the maelstrom, though. If you try to do math and you assume it, your math will keep making sense. Positive reinforcement for continuing to be wrong instead of quiet. Now, really, I only told you half of a proverb just then. The real proverb says that to ask what a proposition means... We ask what you should see that's different, depending on whether the proposition is true or false. Yesterday, water was liquid. Tomorrow, water won't be liquid. How are yesterday and tomorrow different? Well, yesterday, when I poured water from the cup, it spread out over the floor, 
in puddles where it clung to itself. So if tomorrow I pour out water, and it stays in the same shape as when it left the cup, then tomorrow, water is liquid, is false. Yesterday you used a spell to duplicate something, let's say a small flower, a dandelion, and the duplicate dandelion seemed just the same as the original. Tomorrow you use a spell to duplicate a dandelion, and the resulting flower is blue instead of yellow. Is one no longer equal to one tomorrow? Yesterday one equaled one. Tomorrow it won't. What will you see tomorrow that's different from yesterday? Ah, uh, I don't think tomorrow sustains conscious life that's observing things. That's a cop-out, whatever. You're scrying the place where this is true. I still think you try to do math and your math doesn't work anymore. Tomorrow it won't can't be true. Can't be true? Well, if it can't be true that something is false, that would make it a necessary truth, I suppose. Dathilan might imagine that it had managed to deduce what was true in all planes, if it couldn't be false. But if for that reason you can't tell me what you expect to see, what will happen to you, as a consequence, does your necessary truth really mean anything? After all, if it meant only some things could happen to you, but not others, it would cease to be true if you traveled to a plane where other things happened to you instead. So whatever is true, no matter what happens to you, never helps you figure out what will happen to you, and therefore is absolutely useless. Now I have just proven to you that all necessary truths are absolutely useless, and some of you have suggested that math is made of necessary truths. So have you just proved that math is absolutely useless, since whatever could happen to you, that wouldn't make math false, and therefore math can never say anything about what will happen. Otolmans is watching this classroom so hard right now. The mortal had better not be going anywhere weird with this. Physics disasters are bad, but math disasters are so much worse. You can use math to derive how to move a spell, and then the spell works or it doesn't. And target a catapult. And build a bridge. If I have one hat and one head, one equaling one means that after I have put the hat on the head, there won't be any spare hats or any spare heads. It seems possible to imagine observing instead that if you have one of something and one of another thing, it doesn't mean they match up to each other with none going spare. The group is divided on whether this is in fact possible to imagine. Just to check, Carissa Savar, can you describe to me in additional detail what you'd imagine it to be like to observe that? Keltham has had a pretty strange couple of days and is, in fact, less sure of some things than he used to be. I mean, if it happened, I'd assume someone was messing with my head, or I was dreaming, but, well, imagine instead we have five weapons and five spots on a weapons rack. It's not hard to imagine that you put a weapon in each slot, but then there's still one slot left over, and you go back and count, and there are five slots, one of them empty, and you count the weapons, and there are five, all in a rack. It's harder to imagine with one, because in dreams, sometimes counting to five doesn't quite work, but counting to one still does. Saying those words out loud is one thing. Could you create a detailed illusion of it happening? Not a motionless one. I bet I could. Do one that took advantage of how people can't look at a whole landscape at the same time and changed where they weren't looking at it. You'd just be tricking them, though. Even if you did it perfectly, you wouldn't have changed what one equaled. If it's not possible to create an illusion of something being false, you might not need to travel to other planes to guess it would be true there. But I offer the same mischievous objection as before. To say that you can't make an illusion of something doesn't narrow down what kind of future follows from the past. We can make an illusion of a plane where jumping up puts you at the bottom of an ocean instead of off the ground. 
even if in all previous history, jumping just lifted you off the ground a bit, we can make a detailed illusion of a world where that happens the first trillion times, and on the trillion and first time, jumping teleports you under the ocean instead. So if math is about truths, we can't make even an illusion deny. Then why is math any good for building bridges? We can make an illusion of a bridge falling down. They are so confused and varying degrees of distress about it. Actual bridges fall down more if you did the math wrong. Making an illusion of casting a spell isn't the same thing as actually casting the spell. Sometimes the way to pass the test is to be able to actually do it, not just to make it look like you can... Keltham does not have the faintest chance of noticing that somebody who did well in a Chelish Academy is leaking tiny signs of distress past their routine concealment thereof. Well, I think I've created enough explicit confusion that you'll notice learning something that makes you feel less confused, Keltham says, and then makes a brief sad face about how this snappy statement sounds so ridiculously long in Taldane. What kind of language makes confusion a three-syllable word anyways? One that has no idea what its nearly neural-level cognitive primitives are, presumably. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.